You're listening to the Sunday podcast from Life Point Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. All right. Grab your Bibles and open it up to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. If you're watching online, welcome. We're thrilled you're here with us as we are live here at the 945 service. We are in Romans chapter 8. We're continuing last week's sermon on what is the Holy Spirit? What, what are all these terms to be filled with or baptized in or a refilling or receiving? Um, so we're talking about what this is. Uh, my goal through this series is to take the weirdness, the uncertainty, the doubt that is surrounded around who the Holy Spirit is and bring it into what it was intended, he was intended to be. See, even I get caught in saying it. What he was intended to be, which is the helper, the comforter, right? The paraclete, the advocate for us between God and man. And so part of that is having to dispel rumors, preconceived notions. Most of you already have some sort of background or teaching on what the Holy Spirit is, and so that can become even a barrier to you to receiving and trusting in God and His Spirit. I know for me, it certainly was. And if you're the devil, it would make sense that you would go after the very thing meant to bring unity to God's people and bring confusion to it, right? If you're going to go after them, go after the very thing that brings unity. His spirit unites us. His spirit gives power. His spirit is what the early disciples and church members walked in for the power of the gifts of healing and the power to go to whatever death was set before them with joy on their hearts and have those who would kill them say, what in the world are these people worshiping? Because they are not worshiping some image. They are not worshiping some carved piece of stone. There is something greater in them. That's God's spirit that did that. And here we are 2,000 years later, separated by denominational beliefs and understandings of his spirit to where we either mute it so we don't really talk about it at all or we um, exalt it in the blessings and we, we over talk about it and, and, and we overemphasize things like the spiritual blessings and healings and money and houses and things we can get if we just have faith and some certain stuff that is uh, not exactly accurate. What I want to do is with everything is to find a, a, the balance. Where is God at? And so we look at scripture. We look at scripture to say, okay, let's see what's going on. So I want to read verses five through eight again. Um, we're going to look at this section of scripture here specifically this morning. It says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. I want to point out, go, go back one verse or one slide. It does not submit to God's law. The mind governed by the flesh does not submit to God's law. What's the next words? Nor can it. It is not spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally possible for an unredeemed mind to look at God's law and submit to it. It cannot do so. 
This is why it's so ridiculous for the Christian American to get upset, to be outraged, to curse or argue with an unbeliever over not following things that you have been convicted to follow. Because they can't. It's right there. It's right there in the scripture. They cannot do so. An unregenerate mind cannot choose the things of God. It must be upheld by God. You must have his spirit living within you. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. So often we look at that one. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God, and yet we completely overlook the fact that those who don't know the Lord don't have the capability to follow and submit to things. But you do. If you've received Jesus, you've received his spirit. We talked about that last week. We received God's Holy Spirit when we receive Jesus instantaneously. It's not a thing you work for. It's not part of sanctification. Bam, you have his spirit. And so one of the things we talked about is then what's the difference between all of this baptizing, baptism of the Holy Spirit, filling of the Holy Spirit, anointing of the Holy Spirit, being prayed over for the Holy Spirit for a specific ministry. If you've already got the Holy Spirit, why do I need the Holy Spirit? Right? Is anybody exhausted by that? What do I do? Now, this is what we're going to look at this morning. We built a foundation last week talking about not looking at the Holy Spirit as an abstract, right? It is uh, a he. It, we, he is seen as a he. He is spoken as a he, the third part of the Trinity. And so what I want to look at this morning is what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So often when we think of this as Christians and we're wanting to be religious or holy, is we sit down and we say, okay, come on in, I just need more. Oh Lord, I don't have enough power to overcome my sin, so would your Holy Spirit help me? Oh Lord, I don't have power to do this or that or have the courage, so would your Holy Spirit help me? Oh Lord, I don't have patience to deal with my children, oh please Holy Spirit, help me. I just need it, I need it, your Spirit. You see, just those saying, just each of those prayers I just did, each of those sentences are an abstraction of God's Holy Spirit, right? Could you come and like sprinkle your dust upon me that I might magically have the patience I need to deal with this situation? Or I might have the courage to go and face an enemy or, 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 or uh, somebody who has hurt me that I might overcome a years-long addiction. Would you just... You sprinkle your spirit dust on me. Do you hear me? This is how the average Christian looks at God's Holy Spirit. I know it is. I've prayed with you. I have prayed these prayers in error. Because we don't look at it as a relationship. Which is why the church, especially in America, the richest country in the world, why the church has lended itself to looking at the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit for the experiences that he provides. We look at the Holy Spirit not for the relationship, not understanding that to be filled with the Spirit means to be filled, to be filled with a person means to be completely influenced by that person. That's what it means. To be filled with the Spirit means to be influenced by that person. I think I gave the example last week of my parents came in, moved in with us for two and a half years when they moved out here. It was longer than either party thought it was going to be. We each had to change up so much about our normal routines in our house, and we were both deeply influenced by the other group. 
my wife and I and our four kids and my poor parents, right? And we were each influenced. Everything we did, loud noises, TV, music, outside events, all of it was influenced by each other. That's relationship. That's being influenced by God's spirit. That's seeing his spirit as he is and not as an it who can come and help me out in a jam. But when you don't understand that and you want to take the easy way to God's spirit, well, then we focus on the blessings. We focus on the experiences. We, we want to go to a conference where we see a great healing or we want to go to a conference where we get filled in this feeling of feeling good and, and we don't want to do the work of submitting our lives before him, of changing our routines, of saying, God, I, I no longer want to walk through my day with, with whatever I want, right? Like recognition from people, do good at my job, praise from my wife, <laughs> whatever it is. I, I want to walk through today, Lord, and I want the things I do, I want the people I talk to, the decisions I make to be influenced by you. I want to be filled with your spirit today, God. You see, when you focus on the relationship, the experiences, the blessings come with. But when you focus on the experiences and the blessings of God's spirit and not the relationship, you get a counterfeit spirit. It'd be like, for those of you who are married in here, right? There's experiences in marriage, aren't there? There's wonderful experiences in marriage without with being safe from the stage, the physical union between man and woman, that's a pretty sweet experience. I'm a fan of it, personally. It's a wonderful experience. Did I marry my wife for the experience? I hope not. I married my wife because of how much I loved being in relationship with her, who she was, how amazing she was. Truthfully, that experience, now hear me on this, I could have gotten from many different people, right? The experience. From her alone could I get the relationship and the blessing and the experience that came through it. When you begin to treat the Holy Spirit as an abstract, you will begin to seek the blessings of the Holy Spirit and you will find there are many other counterfeit spirits willing to give you similar blessings. But they aren't the Holy Spirit. Now keep that as a foundation from where we're going from here because uh, it'll help with, with with what I say next. Okay, it says here that they set their minds on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. And then immediately it says the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So what does the spirit of God put on your heart as you begin to say, okay, I want your mind, Lord. I want to be influenced by you. Well, first he puts your heart on the law onto the law, onto his law. You begin to see it differently, not as a book of rules and a list of things you must follow, but you begin to realize the heart of my father, the heart of my God is in this law. His nature is in this law. He puts your heart on his word, on the words that have been written by men who have followed his spirit. The Spirit of God shows you the Word and makes the Word come alive to you. No longer is this a book full of just empty, boring, dry, old stories, but it is the very essence of life. 
You can open it up and turn to any page, read it, and and God can fill you with life and joy. You can be dry and find a scripture, have it read to you, have it come across your social media page, and it just, bam, speaks to you. And it's not a Chinese proverb. It's not some saying that makes you feel good. It is the very word of life that was breathed into you that speaks back to you. And fourth, the nature of the Spirit is an experience in your life. You will experience something different, something supernatural, something out of the norm. I think last week it was second service that I said, we serve a supernatural God, but we want a supernatural service. (laughs) Give me a basic service where nothing weird happens. I want it to be natural, right? That's why I come to this church. If I wanted a weird experience, I'd go to the Protestant charismatic church down the street. I just want a natural service. We often don't expect God to do anything supernatural because we, we don't see supernatural things happen a lot in our lives. And to be honest, we've seen more people abuse the blessings and experiences of the spirit. And so we take the safe route of let's just keep the spirit and the weird stuff at home in your personal time. And when we meet together publicly, we will have just calm order. I can tell by the smiles on the faces, you all know exactly what I'm talking about. I grew up Baptist and Reformed, and so I know exactly what I'm talking about, right? And yet, again, whoops, when I go to the scripture, I don't see that, right? Let's just go to the Bible, all of my fellow Baptist Reformers. Every time I see Paul talking about a service, he's talking about the Spirit, when the people of God are gathered together, like just powerfully coming upon them. Words of wisdom, words of prophecy, people get up and speak. He says there should be order to it, and yet it, we, here's the thing, what they considered an ordered service would be considered chaos in Christian American culture, right? What, what, what they considered order, which is moves of the Holy Spirit, healings, words, tongues, all of this stuff that happened, we would consider those are the crazy Christians. What, are you going to handle snakes next? Like, what's next? You guys are with me, aren't you? You're not talking a lot, but I can tell you're with me on this. So, so what do we do? What do we do when we have been so heavily influenced either by a denomination that demotes the Holy Spirit or been so burned or hurt by a denomination that abused the gifts and the experience of the Holy Spirit. Well, do the only thing you can do. We go back to the basics. We go back to the very foundation of what the Holy Spirit is and who he is and how he operates in our lives. So there's three main ways I'm gonna point out here this morning. Uh, And then we'll, we'll close, it'll be real simple. First, there's the ministry of regeneration. That means when the Spirit first comes and regenerates your heart, right? The Bible says we're born dead in our trespasses. Obviously, we're alive in the flesh, but dead in spirit. We're born dead in our trespasses, so the Holy Spirit regenerates our dead spirit. He gives us a new birth. It's the first ministry of the Spirit, John 16.8. John 16.8. The Spirit of God comes into the world to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Into the world... So the way you can tell you've been regenerated is, has the Spirit of God come and convicted you of sin and righteousness and his judgment? It's the first way to tell. Has the Spirit of God come? Have I received his Spirit? What does it mean to be convicted of sin? 
It doesn't just mean you admit to it, right? Your four-year-old will admit to sin all day long. It doesn't mean they're convicted. <laughs> they see no reason to stop, just do better at not getting caught, right? They're not convicted. It doesn't just mean that you're upset about the mess sin's gotten in you into. We see that amongst all of us adults. We get ourselves in a mess and then we become really apologetic and sorry and a lot of times it's with our spouses, right? And we're like, oh my gosh, what have I done? A lot of times it's at work and we realize we've been lazy but now we've been caught, we've created a mess and so they're, oh, I'm deeply convicted. Are you though? Or do you realize you've gotten yourself in a very deep mess and you're going to ruin a lot of the blessings you had in your life and so, what you believe is conviction is actually just sorrow that your life is now not gonna be as sweet as it once was. That's not conviction. Conviction of sin, and hear me on this, means that you actually experience and feel your sin as it is distasteful and loathsome to an almighty God. I recognize that it's not just what my sin has gotten in, me into or, or how it's wrecked me, but I realize fully that my sin separates me, put Christ on the cross is what separates me from my creator. It's what breaks his heart. Until you're not that upset about your sin, until you're not that understanding that my sin separates me from my creator, all you have done is you feel upset or you feel bad and you're just looking inward eyeballs as my father used to say just at how your relationship God, with God can benefit you. I better become a Christian so my kids grow up right. I take my kids to church so that way they grow up right. You see the inwardness of sin, but until you see the rebellion of your own heart, until you see that even after you said, yes, Lord, be God of my life, that there is still rebellion in your heart that wants to take over the throne. Do you hear me? Don't you? Where are my believers at in here who say, yeah, I get that. Yeah. I've given him my life and yet I constantly feel myself wanting to take the throne back over. Right. That's the first, the regeneration of the heart. That's the first ministry of the Holy Spirit. Here's another one. Now this one's super, super powerful, incredibly important. So if you don't get anything out of today, my prayer has been all week, and it was the week prior because I was hoping to have gotten to this last week, that you get this. The second thing the Holy Spirit convicts us of is our own righteousness. It's your righteousness. What does that mean? Conviction of righteousness it means you don't just see yourself as a sinner. You see, religious people confess their sins. Religious people repent of their sins. But a disciple of Christ who has the ministry of the Spirit in their life also repents of his or her righteousness. How can I repent of my righteousness? Well, all people will admit that they mess up and that they're a sinner. Even those who like to say, well, I don't sin anymore. You're a liar, so you're a sinner. Even my best deeds, even my best intentions, even my greatest sacrifices are not righteous enough. And that's what it looks like to recognize your own righteousness, to be convicted of your own righteousness. In fact, Romans 1, 16 through 17 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel 
for it is the power of God unto salvation, for by it the righteousness of God is revealed to those who believe. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Now get this, Martin Luther, right? The Martin Luther said this about his recognition of his own righteousness and the Holy Spirit bringing it to him. For a long time, Luther wrestled with this verse. What in the world does it mean that the righteousness of God is revealed? One day he wrote down these words. Suddenly I realized that this was an alien righteousness. This was a righteousness not that I devised, but a righteousness that came from God to me. And the moment I believed it came into my life, I began to live. The minute I realized that I felt myself ushered into paradise through open doors, he said, I was born again that day. Martin Luther had been convicted of his sin in the Catholic Church for years. Years. He studied and knew the Bible better than any of us in here and was fully convicted of his wickedness. And he said, the day I became a Christian was the day the Holy Spirit convicted me of my righteousness. All of my good deeds, all of my good thoughts, everything that I ever felt God maybe owed me for because I have sacrificed my life for him, everything I've laid down, pride and unbelief grabbed hold of that and created in itself its own righteousness. And I substituted that for his righteousness. And friends, this is so, so easy for us in America. When you have every need that you could possibly have met, met at your fingertips, it is so easy to begin to believe we, f- we are following God when we are walking in our own righteousness. What does it look like to not be convicted of your righteousness? Well, it looks like this. When I'm talking to somebody or you ask the question, hey, are you, are you a Christian? If you were to die right now, would you go to heaven? Yes, I would. Or would you say right now you are walking as a disciple of Christ? Well, I'm trying. You see, you're not convicted of your righteousness. You're trying? What does that mean, you're trying? Well, I'm trying, you know, I fall down and I mess up. Well, yeah, we all know that. But if you can't say, yes, I am a disciple of Christ, led by his spirit, 100%, then your righteousness still has a hold on you. Allow me to help make it hopefully more clear with this example. I've said before that I came to the Lord because of my wonderful, godly grandmother at six years old. For some reason, for me, it stuck. It made sense. It wasn't just a decision I made to please grandma. I I followed him through junior high and high school and college and, and towed the line and was the good Christian boy and all of that and didn't do all the things you weren't supposed to. And then I get into my late teens and early 20s and I begin to hit a really depressed state and a hurt state and a disconnected from God's state and I begin to think to myself uh, after coming back from a retreat, ah, I really wish I had one of those pasts, right? One of those pasts that you always hear up at retreats of drugs and alcohol and sex and, and horrible things so that way I could sense God's spirit. I could see who I was versus who I'm not. Man, why did I have to start following you so early, God? My father, being the wise sage that he is, said, son, you know, every time you do something good, or you turn down a party or an invitation, 
Every time you chose to spend time with the Lord versus go out and do something else that you could have. Who do you think was doing that in you? Do you think that was you? And he said something that I'll never forget. He said, you have become so familiar, so in tune with the relationship of God that you mistake his thoughts for your thoughts. You think you're that good? You think you're that sacrificial? You think at your core of who you are in your heart, you're, you're just this wonderful human being? He's like, you have heard his voice so long in your life, you don't recognize your voice apart from his. And it was just like, <clears throat> it would be three years later, maybe four, until I would actually pray and get on my knees while my face before God because he would allow me to spend nine months of my life where he removed his spirit from me. I don't believe he removed it. I believe he let me feel what it would be like to walk since all I'd ever known was walking in his spirit. And those were the most depressing, darkest, hateful nine months of my life. And when he came and spoke conviction over me, finally, in my early 20s, did I repent of my righteousness before God two decades of relationship walking with him. Friends, if this is something you have never done, that you have never recognized, that you have, you have held God to a standard, why didn't you do this, God? Why didn't you heal this, God? Why didn't you help here, God? Why didn't, why'd you allow this church experience to happen, God, and burn me? Why did you allow this relationship to happen? Hear me on this. If these are ways that you still talk to God, you have not been convicted of your righteousness. And maybe today's the day you need to seek the Holy Spirit for that conviction. Sanctification is the third work, Romans 8.13. It says to mortify the deeds of the flesh. It's a day in and day out process. You need to continually be filled with the Spirit. Because again, this isn't a magic power you get filled with. It is a daily reminder that I need to be influenced by the Spirit. What else will you be influenced by if you're not influenced by God's Spirit? What else? Anything else, right? The world is happy to send you influences. What is it? The numbers in the tens of thousands of advertisements and messages we come across a day, especially with mobile devices now. And we, we have so tuned them out, we don't even see them anymore, but they say the numbers in the tens of thousands of advertisements. The world is demanding your attention, and if you don't wake up each day Renewing that, saying, Lord, today it is you I wish to be influenced by. Fill me with your spirit today, God. You see, people who say that aren't seeking a magical feeling or experience. They are recognizing that if I don't ask and seek for God's filling in my life, I will be influenced by whatever I come across today. And it is by his very power and his influence that I will have power to overcome the temptations that the day will throw at me. All right, so where does this leave us all uh, when it comes to baptism of the Holy Spirit? What we see in Pentecost, so we know that Jesus breathes on the disciples after he's risen from the dead, and that is sort of the first, you know, they've received salvation, he, bre he physically breathes on them, they receive his spirit, it says in John uh, 20. So then why do they then need his spirit again at Pentecost to come upon them where it says they're baptized in the spirit? And I mentioned this, I believe, briefly last week in this service, but 
One pastor said it this way. He said, we receive the Holy Spirit at salvation, but we release the Holy Spirit at the baptism. What does that mean? Well, it looks like this, fellow Baptists and Christians and maybe people who have always thought about these things like I have and been like, I don't need that. It'd be like the Holy Spirit is a Porsche, and I gave this example five years ago, almost to the day. It's like a Porsche, a GT3 to be exact. Should any of you ever come across money and wish to so bless a Santan Valley pastor? <laughs> Porsche GT3. It's like being given that, and then you take it and you say, oh my gosh, this is wonderful and it's powerful and there's so much I can do with it, and you just park it in the garage and you pull out your gremlin that you've been getting through life through, and you just jump back in that. But you got it, you've got it, 100%. You have it, you have received the Porsche, it is yours. But you haven't released it. You haven't actually filled it with gas and actually gone out. And you're like, yeah, but it's really powerful, it's scary, I'm uncomfortable with it. You see in the analogy yet? This is what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. It is a moment where they received the power to be released in the God's Spirit. Now you see in Acts 4 that after being thrown in jail because they were teaching, Peter and John go with the group and they begin to pray. And it says that they prayed and the ground began to shake and they asked for the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well now you've been baptized with him, you've received him, what is this filling about? Why do you have to be filled with him? And why Peter and John, who have been there every step of the way? What's it say happened after the ground shook and they were filled with spirit? Does anyone know? It says they went and spoke boldly. God had a ministry for them. God had a work for them. God had a specific place that they were going to go and what they were going to do. And they knew that apart from his spirit, we will fail, we will fall on our faces, we will absolutely be foolish. And so they prayed, God, fill us again. Friends, I'm telling you, if you have taken the Holy Spirit in your life and you have let it be something you have pushed down or you have just been like, I don't want to get into the weirdness or the arguments or anything with that. And even the words baptism of the Holy Spirit for you is like, isn't that just a Pentecostal term? That's like a, like a liberal term. It's not. That's actually a biblical term. It's right there. And then we see Paul continually say, seek these things, desire these things. Because what he's wanting to do is encourage you as believers and say, you can do it. You can get behind the will and you can go. Do you need training? Yeah. Before I jumped into a Porsche GT3 on the road, I would be very wise to take it through a track with somebody who knows what they're doing. Oh, now wait a minute. You mean like a Christian mentor? You mean like discipleship? What? Yes, that's what I mean. I need that actually later. That's why we do this. I don't know how to do this. I'm going to go out and I'm going to mess it up. You will. So get a, get a mentor. Get, get a Paul in your life. Get somebody to come alongside you and disciple you and love you and show you. <laughs> Romans 8:16. the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. 
Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. And if we are heirs of God, then we are co-heirs with Christ. Next week's going to be something else. Put it in your calendar. Don't miss next week here. We may actually combine for one service. Don't hold me to that. We might. Because here's, here's the thing. In this book, I mentioned, I think, last week, there are nine pages dedicated to the actual revival night, the falling of the Holy Spirit on the crowd and just this unbelievable outpouring of repentance, confession, healing, faith. It was awesome. The other 191 pages in this book are dedicated to the 100 years prior to 1907 and the 50 years that followed when this book was written in 1957. It's the work, it's the foundation, it's the planning, it's everything that went into being prepared, the discipleship. Can I admit something really embarrassing? When I was a skinny kid, I prayed that I would wake up one day and just have muscles. I'm like, God, you can do anything, I believe it, because I had faith, right? Like, I don't do drugs, I don't have sex before marriage, so maybe you could just give me some muscles. This guy gets it, Joe gets it, right over here, right? Stand up, Joe. Yeah, see, he gets it. Now wait, don't worry, I'm gonna embarrass myself way worse. So now, as a grown man and a pastor, I may have gone to bed a few times and prayed, said, God, if you could just get rid of these 50 extra pounds I've put on, if I could just wake up in the morning and have it be gone. And then I'm like, what am I doing? I'm such an idiot. See, that's how we treat the Holy Spirit, right? I don't wanna to go to the gym. I don't wanna to have to sit and work out. I don't wanna to have to discipline myself and eat right and change my lifestyle and begin to do things with the Spirit in mind. But the fact of the matter is, when you read this book, that's what the, before, that's what the 20, two, 23 years before 1907 that William Blair and the other missionaries were pouring into and building up the church before God's spirit fell upon it. For over two and a half years and probably longer than that, there have been men and women in this church praying for revival, praying for God's spirit to just come down and move the people here. This isn't the very beginning. You aren't, we aren't sitting at the very beginning. We are sitting in a place where I believe God wants to move but so many of us are still sitting here saying, I am scared to death, I'm incapable, you don't understand. I can't go do that, I'm an introvert. I can't be somebody who shares the gospel. I can't be somebody who, who, who walks up and gives a word to somebody or, or says, hey, God told me that you need healing and I, I just, that's not for me. That's for somebody else and I am so far over time, so band, come out. But this is what we do, right? It's this false humility, it's false. And I know it's false, because I've done it my whole life, that says that's for somebody else. God, use them like that. Don't use me like that. I've been given so many words, especially when God first gave me this. When I actually got anointed and filled with the Holy Spirit to be a senior pastor, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit when I was 21, and I went back east. And uh, that's, a, that's maybe next week, that's a crazy story. And, I was filled with the Holy Spirit for ministry in, uh, in uh, February of 2013, and then by the summer of 2013, I was sent out here, had no idea, and I'm telling you, I'm telling you, there is, there, there is this idea that, okay, God, just, well, just give me a little bit. 
And I begin to have people prophesy and say, Nathan, you're going to preach in front of thousands. Nathan, you're going to be a preacher to preachers. Nathan, God is going to send your voice over the world. And I just was like, no, thank you. Santan Valley is fine. I didn't even want to do live stream because now people all over the world can see me and criticize me and judge me. And then now it's like, well, it's not just the people of Santan Valley. And we begin to have this false sense of humility that says, oh, no, Lord, just give me something small. but I want us to pray for more. That, that part of me is gone. God has removed that. And my prayer has been, Lord, I want more of you. I don't want a bigger church. I don't want a bigger audience. I want more of you. And whatever that leads to, Lord, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. Whatever it leads to, but I want more of you. Because I'm tired of putting your spirit in a box. I'm tired of putting your spirit in what I know denominationally in order to not be made uncomfortable, Lord. Right? Anybody else tired of that? Am I the only one? Come on. Come on. I'm tired of it, God. I've lived it. I've done it. I've got your spirit and I've kept it in the garage and it's nice and it's clean. It doesn't have a scratch on it. When I came out here, I felt ill-prepared to be a senior pastor, and don't get me wrong, I was. That apart from the work of God's Spirit in my life, this whole thing would have fallen. But the last nine years are testament to letting go of your religion and of your sin and of your righteousness. See, I wanted to be a businessman for God. I wanted to give large amounts of money to the church in God's name and, and, and do what I wanted to do, command businesses and different industries that I was into, and I would give the church so much money for all of those people to go and do the mission work of God. And God just laughed and laughed. And when he came to me in, in, in 2009, he said, hey, I, I don't have that for you. I've got something else for you, but you're going to need a full filling of my spirit. You're going to need to desire me more than you've ever desired me. You're, you're going to need my spirit, Nathan. And I haven't looked back since. And I'm telling you, it's made all the difference. For some of you in here, God is speaking those same words. I think for many of you in here, he is. I think for some of you in here, you will actually answer the call. But God is speaking those same words to you. He's saying, come on. You have played it safe too long. And this has nothing to do with age. No matter where you're at, God is speaking to you saying, come on, do you want more of me? Come get more of me. Come get more. We're going to have our prayer partners up here in the front closing worship like we usually do. But I just, I challenge you this morning, get up out of your seat. If, if God's speaking to you, if you want more of his spirit, get up, come forward. Let's pray. We'll partake of communion together and then worship the Lord. Oh, Father, it is by your spirit, Lord, that I speak these words. And I pray that you would, you would bring the harvest, Lord. That you would bring the harvest. Move in this place, God, in a mighty way. May we see great repentance, forgiveness given, forgiveness sought. 
Lord, for a contrite heart you do not despise. Thank you, in Jesus' name. The time of Passover, Jesus would go to a room with his disciples. On the night that he would be betrayed, he took bread and broke it with them. And he told them, this is my body. It's a gift given to you. We know that when Jesus breathed his last breath and died upon the cross, that at that moment, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies was torn in two. And the access that we now have to the Almighty God was given at the sacrifice of the body of Christ. So Lord, we thank you that we can stand here today with the gift of your Holy Spirit and we can cry out, Abba, Father. We love you, Lord. Let's eat together. Jesus would then take of the cup and he would say, this is my blood for the forgiveness of sin and as a mark of a covenant, a new covenant between God and man. It is by his blood that we are healed. It is by his blood that our sins have been washed as white as snow. It is by his blood that his righteousness is our righteousness. It is by his sacrifice, his love, Lord, convict those in here today of their own righteousness. May we not be a religious people, but may we be Christ followers, disciples. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.